From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're going to explore women's occupational health hazards with an international expert whose presentations in Syracuse were arranged by Upstate's occupational health and clinical centers. In the HealthLink on Air studio with me is Karen Messing, a a, uh, author and researcher and professor emerita from the University of Quebec in Montreal with expertise in occupational health hazards and ergonomics. Welcome, Dr. Messing. Thank you. Well, you've got a doctorate in biology and a master's in genetics. How did you get into researching occupational hazards and why have you focused on women? Well, um, how did I get into occupational hazards was because my university since 1976 has had an agreement, a signed agreement with the trade unions in Quebec, uh, the three major trade union confederations. And that agreement provides for research and training expertise for the unions. So the way it works is if a union has a need, uh, say, for training in ergonomics, uh, they'll call the university. There's a full-time staff member who's paid to um, bring together the uh, union request and the relevant professors. So they'll call us, and then if we can do it, we'll, we'll do it. And they provide coordination all along the project so that uh, the, the funds for the project actually come from regular research funding or training funding. Uh, but the job of making sure that the professors really respond to the request and really respond to the need and that the unions understand that the professors are going to find out whatever they're going to find out, whether the union likes it or not, that whole job of coordination is, is paid for by the university. And it's been a really winning um, arrangement for the university because we've brought in, just our group alone has brought in uh, several millions of dollars in outside funding um, from, from the usual funding sources, but still specific for this program because we get workers' questions much before everybody else. So the way it happened was here I am with my PhD in molecular genetics of fungus, and somebody calls in and says, well, we have a union that's exposed to ionizing radiation, and we need an expert to explain to the people what are the dangers for them. Uh, and so they called me because I was the only person that had genetics anywhere in their keywords. And I said, well, yes, but uh, I didn't ever look at a human genetics before, and I don't know anything about it, but I can explain, you know, genetics 101. So they said, yeah, come along and explain it gen- in genetics 101. So I met with the um, president of the union and the, and the people on the union executive, and I said, well... Um, what radiation does is it can uh, hit chromosomes and and change DNA, which is the genetic material. And I sort of went on with an academic explanation of this. And it was very quiet in the room. And all of a sudden, the president said, okay, so this could be what happened to my daughter. And his daughter had a, a... condition that could well have been genetic. And then of the five guys that were there, four of them had kids with problems that really? could have been related to the radiation. And the fifth one's wife was pregnant. So wow. it was really a horrible 
strange moment that I can't, can still not talk about without emotion. And I woke up and realized I wasn't lecturing to an undergraduate classroom. I was lecturing to real people with real problems. So that made me, I was quite young at the time, and it made me think about where did I want my science to go. And so I started thinking more about, about human genetics. And I, uh, at the time also, this was many years ago, you, you weren't as much channeled into, you know, I did this for my PhD and I did this for my postdoc, so I better keep doing it for the rest of my life because I'm never going to be, none of my granting agencies are going to let me change a comma in my, in my project description. And so it wasn't like that then. And, and so I was able to have a certain amount of, of uh, I guess, permission from my department and from my university and from the granting agencies that I was able to get money from, from um, the Medical Research Council in, uh, in Canada to go on and, and study these people with help from a lot of colleagues that knew more about it than I did. So I got my education in, in human genetics, and then the, uh, because of that experience with the radiation, um, I then was called by a hospital union asking me to look at radiology technicians and me nuclear medicine technicians and radiotherapy technicians. And I did a study with them where I realized that the, the risks that they were exposed to were not primarily from the radiation. The radiation doses, in most cases, um, except for exceptional situations, the, the radiation doses they were exposed to were fairly low. But the other kinds of risks that they were undergoing uh, were extremely important, such as that they had uh, just stepped up the rate of admissions and the rate of, um, of discharge in the, in the hospitals due to cost cutting. They were just trying to cycle people through very, very fast. And because they were, they were doing that, a lot more people were outpatient, and therefore the outpatients were a lot sicker, and therefore they had to be moved around a lot in the, uh, by the people in the outpatient services like radiotherapy and nuclear medicine technicians. And so they were doing a lot of, of manual, I guess you can call it manual materials handling, except the materials were patients, and they were getting backaches, and they were getting in, in terrible physical problems. And because this was all invisible to the people who were planning this work, I became interested in the fact that women's work is the, the radiology, the, the, the guys in the plant where they were exposed to radiation, it was horrible and it was scary for them and it was dangerous, but everybody was aware that it was dangerous. The people working in the hospital at the time, there was no sensitivity to the idea that they might themselves be at risk. And I was fascinated by that. So little by little, I got more and more tools for examining in a more holistic way uh, what was going on with these hospital workers, eventually retraining in ergonomics and um, beginning to look at, at uh, systemic approaches to occupational I health. saw that uh, in your name appears on more than 130 peer-reviewed scientific articles, and when I looked through the titles of them at least, I saw that you've done research on a variety of workers, um, sewing machine operators, hospital cleaners, food service workers, retail teachers, um, dozens and dozens of occupations. Is there a theme or anything similar that you've found across all of the fields you've looked at? Well, mo most of the, almost, I would say about 90% of the jobs you've 
mentioned are, are jobs that are primarily done by women. I mean, our, our workforce, ours in Canada and yours in the United States, are, are highly segregated, and women's uh, jobs have certain common characteristics. So the, the characteristics uh, of uh, these jobs done by women is that, um, to put it one way, if the thing looks really scary, if it, if it involves somebody lifting up weights that are so heavy that their muscles bulge and, and they're saying, oomph, then uh, you're going to ask a guy to do it. When it's visibly hazardous, you ask a guy to do it. And when, you, when it's not, then women are, are able to enter those professions. And that means that, to put it the other way around, that the risks in women's jobs are, are less visible. So, for example, um, people don't think when they buy the dishes for the restaurant that somebody's going to have to be carrying those dishes and that those dishes are going to be heavy. They don't choose the dishes by weight. Um, they don't set up the restaurant so as to make it easy and pleasant to walk from the kitchen to the table. You, you set up the restaurant so that the guests, the, the clients, will be feeling comfortable. Um, so there's a lot of, of physical hazards in the service industries that are just not thought of because the people that, that you're thinking about are the clients and not, and not the workers. And that has all kinds of health consequences. I've got some more questions, but let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with author and researcher Karen Messing about women's occupational health hazards. Um, we've heard, too, that uh, sitting is the new smoking. Um, which insinuates that it's unhealthy to sit at a desk all day. But what about standing? Yeah, the the idea that sitting is dangerous has come from some studies that I have critiqued in, in detail in my publications, and it would be kind of technical to go into why I think this, but what I think is that there's confusion in the scientific literature about the li difference between sitting and standing. If you compare sitting all day to uh, sitting when you feel you need to because you're tired and combining that with healthy physical activity like running or bicycling or swimming, then yes, it's much better to be running, bicycling, and swimming than to be sitting on your butt all day. That I have no quarrel with. But what people often confuse as the alternative to sitting is static immobile standing like uh, the way North American uh, supermarket cashiers are, mm -hmm. and only in North America. Um, they, and that is an extremely unhealthy posture. Uh, the fact that you stand, you have no ability to sit when you get tired or when, you f when your body is telling you, I really need to sit right now, is associated with cardiovascular outcomes like var varicose veins and other um, kinds of uh, orthostatic hypotension um, and so forth, as well as considerable uh, evidence of musculoskeletal disorders uh, in the legs, feet, and lower back. So uh, to my mind, this idea that sitting is smoking, um, sitting is not smoking. Smoking is smoking. Okay. All right. And mm. the solution for some of those standing, there are uh, grocery store clerks that are able to sit, on right? Well, in Saudi Arabia, where women are supposed to be so oppressed, the cashiers sit, yes. 
Okay. <laughs> I, all right, so that's a solution. You know, all over Europe, the cashiers sit. But you, you, what would be ideal, what is ideal, is actually a sit-stand chair where workers can rapidly change their posture uh, from sitting to inclined to standing as they, as they need to and as their body tells them to. There's a lot of jobs that require a lot of standing, but then there's a mix. I mean, a, a nurse... Mm-hmm. is on her feet a lot or his feet a lot but there's also some pl- time to sit or where you're bending or you're doing something besides standing in one static place well what you actually are bringing up there is the freedom to control your own posture nurses are fairly high up in the hierarchy as far as women's jobs are concerned and so they usually can sit when they when they feel like it not when they feel like it no because they're run off their feet but um, they nobody is going to get angry at them if they see them sitting. Whereas a supermarket cashier who gets who's sitting gets a lot of nasty remarks. Same thing with a receptionist. Same thing with a bank teller. Um, so that there's there's two elements. There's there's the element of can your workplace accommodate you physically sitting, and then there's the question of whether you yourself have the uh, control, the leeway to control your own posture. And both of those are elements in in promoting workplace health. I was going to ask you if the hazards women face are different than those faced by men, but I think we sort of addressed that we're looking at jobs that are largely... Well, there's also the question of within the same job, whether women and men are exposed to the same hazards. So, yes, across jobs, men's hazards and women's hazards are different. But in addition to that, within the same job title, women and men may end up doing um, different things, either because of an informal uh, division of the physical labor part. Like in gardening, we find that men end up planting trees and driving little machines around, and women end up uh, crouching over and and planting small plants and and doing weeding. And that's not something the employer decides is kind of a something done in the in the work teams and but the other thing that happens is we studied um, food servers and we found that women race around much much faster than men and that the difference in the number of steps they take uh, is way exceeds I think by seven times the difference in stride length so that uh, the women are really running around and then you have to think about what our client expectations of women and men food servers, that kind of thing. Uh, so, so there's the, the you have to think about uh, also the the job divisions within the 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 task divisions within the jobs themselves. Well, thank you so much for talking about this with me. Um, let me remind listeners: your author and researcher, Caring Messing, in Central New York recently to discuss women's occupational health hazards. I'm Amber Smith, and this has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air.